You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, these are just some of the birth pains that mark the time between the advents of Christ. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And we see and feel and grieve for the birth pains we're witnessing even now in Ukraine. The birth pains of war are what we want to take up in today's conversation, and we want to do it from a historical perspective, but we need a little help to do this, so we've enlisted Dr. Gordon Heath. And Dr. Heath is a professor of church history at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario, and author of the forthcoming, and next week to be exact, the forthcoming book, Christians, the State, and War, an Ancient Tradition for the Modern World. Now, this is just Dr. Heath's latest book. To see everything he's written, you got to go to his website. It's gordonlheath.com. But Dr. Heath, welcome to Bead. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I want to jump right in. I know Michael does too. Uh, We want to Uh, to talk about what is this ancient tradition, just picking up on the subtitle to your book, what is this ancient tradition that is able to help us in our modern age? And related to that, what brought you to write this book? Well, I'll start with the second question first. What brought me to write it was, uh, I've been teaching for over 20 years, a lot of courses I've taught on the history of Christians in war, and always presenting you know, as if there are two different positions on Christians in war. You either have to be a pacifist, or you have to be from the just war tradition. And the impression given is that really there, there's this binary. You're either one or the other. And so what drove me to go back to the early church was to find a, a period of time, uh, a, a corpus of literature that, that, that basically moved beyond the binary to find common ground, that, that predated this this this, what I think is a faulty starting point to basically say, oh, are you a pacifist? You're from the just war tradition. Which one Which one are you? As if basically there are two different diametrically opposed positions that you have to pick one and then you're opposed to the other and then you, you argue the rest of your life over it. Um, so I went back pre-Constantinian church. Uh, so anything that I find 
uh, can't be accused of being tainted by by Constantine and, and the alleged corruption and, and in reality some corruption that came after Constantine. Um, to find this ancient tradition, I wanted to find what what did what universally did Christians hold in common, and I found a fivefold tradition that that I could not find any dissenting voice on when it came when it came to Christians, the state, and more. And if you find one, then my whole book falls apart. But but uh, but there are five, and there's one area of dissent where you've got um, Christians differing. So what they all agree on, every example that I could find uh, from the church fathers pre-Constantine would would be these, these five. And they're all interwoven. I pull them apart, but they're all connected, right, in how early Christians would have envisioned the Christians' estate and more. They're all, but I pulled them apart. So um, the state has been ordained by God to use the sword for justice. And that's very important for justice. It's not like willy-nilly anything, but the state has been ordained by God to use the sword for justice. Roman thir- Romans 13 and others. But mm-hmm. but that's, that's you know, uniform. Every, even all the, you know, what we call pacifist church fathers, all argue that. Um, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, is the second key. Um, and connected to Jesus as Lord, I connect the whole criteria of just war. If the state is to use the sword for justice, um, but Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and we're required to do what is right, um, then then uh, the state is not the all ultimate authority over Christians. And we must always have a very conditional relationship with the state. Our obedience to the state is always conditional. It's never... Romans 13 is often, you know, portrayed to be this passage that, oh, you know, Romans 13, the state, you must obey the state no matter what. Early church, early church fathers never thought that. That's why they're martyrs. It's Acts chapter 5, you must obey God rather than men. And so so the state's ordained by God to use a sword for justice, and Christians are to obey Caesar, except when that contradicts what Jesus would have Christians to believe or do, then they can. They must depart from that. Not optional. It's you must. Um, then all human life is valuable, including one's enemies. Um, all human life. And then I get into the image of God and all of that language and sort of the early church ideas, notions of that, the valuing of life. Um, we live in a fallen world, and the state is necessary to to, to suppress sin and, and ideally lead to human flourishing. But you've got Irenaeus talking about you know. Um, bigger fishes devouring little fishes and like like that's what we will do if we're if we're left without a state and so the state's been given the sword for justice to suppress sin and ideally lead to human flourishing and then the final one is um engaging um oh oh and related to eschatology that, that last one we live in a fallen world but of course it's not fallen forever and so our expectation of the suppression of sin is in and i talk about you know, the utopian notions that will develop over time. But um, our expectations of the state suppressing of sin um, must be limited by the fact we're in a fallen world. But what complicates, of course, this notion is that that very state that is supposed to suppress sin and lead to human flourishing actually, ironically, leads to human suffering and thus even more use of the sword. And so it's this vicious cycle. The last one is Christians engage the state. Church fathers, 
even though that now they wrote and addressed the emperor, who knows if the emperor even read or even if the emperor cared, but but the and Tertullian wrote uh, Scapula in North Africa, so they they had no qualms addressing the state and calling the state to use its sword properly, and so all church fathers all agreed on those five, but what I found was early Christians um, did not agree on whether Christians could serve as soldiers. Everything written except one instance, Clement of Alexandria says, if you become a Christian after your soldier, um, no, if you become a Christian, yeah, while you're a soldier, you can stay a soldier. Every other church father says Christians should not participate um, in the army, Tertullian, Origen, and others. So the written record is almost uniformly against Christians serving as soldiers, but there are lots of examples of Christians serving as soldiers. The Thundering Legion in the second century, um, Christian martyrs, uh, soldiers who were martyrs, and I, I provide other examples. And so, so you've got this early church pre-Constantine that writes about not serving as soldiers, but then a significant number, an increasing number over the course of those centuries of Christians serving. The earliest account is is in the 170s of Christians in in the Thundering Legion, and so so I don't see Christian Christians serving as soldiers is to be an area of consensus whether Christians agree on serving as a soldier or not. So I don't include that as part of the early church tradition. It's those other five aspects. I leave that other to conscience. And so, um, oh, and then my argument goes, and I'm taking too much time on this. But no, the argument go ahead. Those five, everything that Christians think about the state, war, violence, from then on to now has been shaped by those five. And the best of the church's response to violence is when the church has been faithful to those five. And the worst of the church's response to violence is when it has departed from those. For instance, denigration of life, you know, loss of, you know, a sense that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, supporting the state when it's using the sword for something other than justice. So when the church departs from those five, that's when we get it wrong. But the examples, and then I do that in my book, I cover 2000 years and basically point out the best is when they're faithful, the worst is when they're not faithful to those five. And then I call it a secondary debate whether we can serve as soldiers or not. But what's uniform is if the state is using the sword for injustice, doesn't matter what kind of Christian you are, you cannot serve to to do injustice. So there, that's Gordon, a lot. Well, it's a lot. Of, more if more I, of a lecture than an answer. Well, I love this, but if I could jump in real quick, and I know Michael wants to too, but I, I beat you to it, Michael. I just got to my mic quicker. Uh, Gord, if you could say maybe briefly, how would this consensus differ from, I mean, I'm so marked by Augustine and his discussion of just war and just war in general. And for example, book 19 of the city of God, would, would he agree to these five? Would you see Augustine as in, in cohesion with these five or does, does he part in, in any of these five ways or five in any of these five? Yeah. No, I, I would think his, his, um, my quick answer is, is no, he wouldn't depart from those five. I, okay. Cause as you were explaining all this, I, I hear him, in all of these five. Yeah, because, but I would say, and that's why I argue that that this, this that's why I make my points, it's so important, it's pre-Constantine. Because yeah. we often think what I just said, oh, that's all post-Constantine. 
That's all Augustine. That's all City of God. That's all sort of post-Constantinian corruption. Everything I just said was all pre-Constantine. And that's what I think is so critical because that's why I call it an early church tradition. It's um, it's what St. Vincent would have said, what Christians believed everywhere, always and by all, that it's this um, Vincentian canon of, of common belief. So. I like that. St. Rudolph, like Yarsov Pelican, what we believe, teach, and confess. And yeah, it sounds like I, we could... Okay. And I think the significance is that this is all pre-Constantine. It's all pre um, huh. and, but it also goes against the grain of the, um, actually what I say goes, it, it, it actually is not the just war proponents won't like some of what I said. And the pacifists won't like some of what I said, um, because I go after both, um, because I both think they're lacking in certain areas. I think they'd be more better off to stick with these five. Do you think, well, Michael, I can, I can, see, I can see you thinking you go ahead. Yeah. Do you think, um, and this is very helpful. I think it's very helpful getting beyond the the uh, the dilemma that has developed in the history of the church since the Constantinian era. Uh, you're either you know a proponent of the just war theory, as say Augustine hammers it out classically for Western thought, or you're a pacifist, as say the Quakers um, develop it, or you know well before them the Mennonites, etc. Um, <clears throat> To what extent is the just well? It, to what extent is the 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 perspective on war and and state violence that you've enunciated uh, has has that changed? Uh, has the twentieth century, with our technology, um, brought changes into that experience of war, uh, the way we think about war? I mean, <clears throat> to go from say you know the Iliad. Um, which describes battle scenes where you're, you see the person you kill, uh, even all the way down to, say, 18th century, say, the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, again, uh, you're firing at a distance, but it's close enough to see your enemy. Um, the violence is all around you. Death is a reality. But then when you come into the 20th century, uh, particularly I'm thinking here of the last 30, 40, 50 years, with uh, the use of drones, uh, rockets, uh, killing you know people miles and miles away, um, and then also the way in which the state controls uh, information flow. So in the recent you know Russian Russo Ukrainian war, uh, I saw interviews with the Russians about the the bombing of Mariupol, for example, and the the Russian people, the, the, one of them was said, no, 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 our government would never do that. They're, they're not doing that uh, because you've got this information flow. So they don't know that the state is, and they support they're supporting the state's use of violence against what they see as you know Nazis, etc. Um, so has the twentieth century, with the rise of totalitarianism and the way in which we kill other human beings in war, introduce factors that change significantly what you said about this ancient tradition? In other words, can the ancient tradition speak into our modern um, world? Oh, totally. Um, well, first, first of all, excellent question. First of all, um, I trace the evolution of those. The, For instance, the, the, the state's use of the sword for justice. I trace that all the way through. I have a chapter that traces it through Eastern Church, 
Western Church, and then Protestants, Anabaptists, Quakers, they all say the same thing about the state's use of the sword. It's for justice. So even who what we call pacifist denominations, Menno Simons says it, Quakers say it, Anabaptists say it, they all say the state's use of the sword is for justice. And so even the pacifists get their history wrong when they think that they're against the state's use of the sword. They don't even know their own history. Um, the modern world, um, I would argue that the ancient tradition um, is just as compelling and just as needed because a part of that ancient tradition is a call for the right use of, of state-sanctioned violence. Um, and there is, with weapons of mass destruction, for instance, um, a great need for the right use of weapons of violence. Now, some will, will argue post nuclear age that the just war tradition is now defunct, that you can't wage war justly um, in an age of weapons of mass destruction. I would argue the exact opposite, that weapons of mass destruction necessitate <laughs> the just war tradition uh, to be even more vigilant because it's only the just war tradition that forces nations to not carpet bomb neighborhoods, to not use weapons of mass destruction, to not use chemical warfare, biological warfare, radioactive warfare. There, and so, what keeps nation, what keeps Russia from from carpet bombing Kiev, is the just war tradition, right? And so, what keeps, you know, and and what keeps nations, what kept America from carpet bombing parts of Iraq, um, you know, get rid of these pesky terrorists. Let's just carpet bomb the whole neighborhood well because because the expectation that's rooted in our notion of waging war is that we must wage it justly and one aspect of that is discrimination the women children non-combatants are supposed to be excluded from combat and so i would argue that that the principle is the same the states to use a sword for justice um and the and the just war criteria that's that's been worked out over centuries is just as compelling, in fact, even more compelling. And you could make an argument that our modern weaponry makes waging war more just than unjust. Instead of carpet bombing a neighborhood to get a single terrorist or a single enemy, let's say, you can fly your cruise missile through the front door and take out a house. You can take out, an, you can take out a single car. Before, you had to fly a B-17 over or you fly your Lancasters over and you firebomb Hamburg. Now you, now you can you can target in ways you couldn't before. You can have a drone strike, right? That that takes out individual specific targets, and so, and that leads to discrimination. Good discrimination. Um, of course, you'll always have regretful casualties um, because war is war, um, and you miss targets and you create havoc that you didn't intend. But does that also? Um, as for information, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry go, go, go ahead. ahead. Finish the yeah, your thought. No, but you you mentioned you mentioned um, information. I think the first thing that people should assume. Now, this goes back. I mean, this goes all the way back to Roman columns when they would carve on Roman sure. Roman columns victories yeah. when it wasn't a victory. So fake news is yeah. two thousand yeah. plus years, right? And so, so you know, you can't. In war, so I, I blog on this. I've got this whole section of blogs on war and future of war and all that. Um, but I've got a three-point blog on on media and the war. And the second you're at war, you cannot believe anything 
um, or, or no, it's not that you cannot, you should not automatically believe anything you get from your government. And But we do. We're so naive in, in, in the West because we live in a fairly benign and benevolent you know, world that we assume the goodness of government. We assume the goodness of media. And, and I'll tell you, I'm reading reports coming out of all over in the West and in the East, from Russia, from the West. Oh, I just shake my head. This is just propaganda. This is madness. And not only from the government's core, but what about it in the day and age of social media when oh. everyone everyone's a journalist? Everyone's a journalist. Everyone's, everyone's a military expert. Yep. And and you've got, oh, it, it's painful. Mm-hmm. And but people just buy it. And so I am. But see, here we go, Michael. One of my one of my points was engage the state, right? And engage the state. And our engaging the state is to um basically the Christian, I quoted my book, I forget who the who it was, Pelican, maybe it was Yerson Pelican. Or was it Yoder said that that Christians know the purpose of the state more than the state yeah. knows the purpose of the state, and we're to call the state to use the sword rightly, um, but the difficulty is we don't have access to the information sometimes to know if it's yeah. being used rightly or not, and so any kind of judgment, um, as you know, um, when. You, <laughs> You read a lot of history. As you know, judgment must always be conditional because, oh, yes, the war is just. We're fighting for this. 20 years later, we find out, well, that was all just a fake war. We didn't, that was just all contrived. You know, the Bay of Pigs, the, the or not the Bay of Pigs, the uh, the uh, Gulf Tonkin incident in, in Vietnam. I mean, contrived, created events to lead to war. And, and goodness. So how can you engage the state? And this is part of the, 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 the problem, the paradox of living in a fallen world. Um, it impacts not on our, there's this impact on our own ability to even know and to trust and to get at the truth. But yet we're still required in the midst of a fallen, broken world to still make ethical judgments. We can't wash our hands of making ethical judgments. It's like, St. Augustine, you know, a judge has to make a ruling and it's like, make a ruling, but Lord help me as I make my ruling because epistemological humility and uncertainty just is par for the course for Christians, but we're still required to make a decision. Um, let me shift the, the, the topic a little. Um, uh, in your in forthcoming book, do you give consideration to the psychological experience of killing another human being? So for instance, I mean, one of the most profound books yeah. that came out on this whole subject of war was John Keegan's uh, examination of uh, Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme. Not from the point of view, the traditional kind of standard point of view of the battlefield commander and the generals and the big diagrams, you know, this the, 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 regiment was here, this battalion was here, then they moved there and whatever. But from the person on the ground, what was it like at Agincourt to be an archer uh, what was it like at Waterloo to be, say, a quatre bois, ba, a bas, uh, receiving the charge of the French cavalry uh, in the British Square? What was it like in the, the trenches at the Somme, going over the top? Uh, do you in does your discussion of war in that particular book um, move beyond the philosophical and theological, and uh, but the actual psychological experience of of the the loss of moral clarity that occurs when you kill another human being, the experience of killing another human being, 
what has to transpire in your mind to do that, uh, et cetera. Well, that, that's part of, yeah, I do deal with that. And that's partly related to the chapter on uh, the value of human life and, and recognizing what war does, not just to those you kill, but to those who are doing the killing. Um, there is no, so even, so I, I do talk about, even if the cause fits all the criteria for, you know, just war, you've got just cause, just means, war may be just, but you're fighting it unjustly. So let's say, Everything you can check off all the boxes. It's it's being waged justly. Um, no soldier who kills, no soldier who takes part in war. I would argue in the book, and, and just echoing what you're saying, returns home the same. There is always moral trauma, moral injury, psychological damage. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're familiar with that. You never come back the same, and so part of the Christian engaging of the state is to, to make the state very aware of what it's encouraging or leading soldiers into, and to make going to war something that is always, always um, thought about very clearly and as a last resort, because not only are you killing people, but even those who come back alive are not alive the same way. Um, it's and so I do deal with that, and it's it's and that's sort of a, I do take issue or not take issue, but if you're sort of an ardent just war supporter, you won't like that section of the book because it it's you know the you know it's sometimes hey hey you know the whole jingoistic we don't want to fight but by jingo if we do we got the men we got the ships we got the money too this you know go fight for the empire it's a it's a jolly good thing or or yeah you know, the Dollar's uh, poem it. It is a sweet thing to die for one's country. Uh, that whole crap. Exactly. And and so we send soldiers off in this. But, of course, that's how we get people motivated to go fight. We send them off to fight this glorious battle. But Christians can never support that kind of language, ever. No. Well, this is where, and then I wondered, this is where Augustine is just, I, I'm assuming, in continuity with the still more ancient tradition he goes to pains to make it clear what misery war is and how we're to understand war. So his understanding of war as a Christian could never, you're right, Gord, embrace language like that or some yeah. kind of triumphalism as we go off to war. And that would fit really with your number three, right? All human life is valuable. And so mm -hmm. the Christian, even in a just war, you're right, just war justly executed, it's misery. It's misery. Even if it's being waged for peace, yeah, yeah, and 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 um, and but and it's generational damage too. It's not just the damage of the soldier that that soldier's families then damaged, and then the children of that soldier's family. So it's it's generational. I've got this um, book. The the name escapes me at the moment, but it just goes back to previous wars, and these wars are over a hundred years ago, and they're still, you know generationally impacting and so so it's um yeah it's it's horrific and and the just war position the worst examples of the just war position have completely lost all that perspective because it's all about go fight you know go fight the the hun and and you know you demonize your enemy and you make your fighting glorious and 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 the cost of war not you know we always talk economic cost, but the human toll is is unfathomable. Do you think? Uh, and 
there's a reason why soldiers, soldiers don't ever talk about their experience. You think as Christians, I'm shifting the topic here a little again. Um, the fact that we worship a crucified Savior, someone who received in his body violence and died a violent death, mm-hmm. do you think, how does that shape our how does that shape your thinking about, or does that shape your thinking about war? Does that enter into this whole discussion? I'm thinking here of Jürgen Moltmann, the crucified God, and the way that after the uh, post-Holocaust, yep. we have a, the, the cross is not only about atonement, but it also speaks about God receiving in his, the body of his own dear son, human violence wrought by soldiers. Right. Well, I, I think as a Christian, that is a challenge for me. But I still think the role of the state is to use the sword for justice. I don't think, I don't see, um, actually, I think the Holocaust is a call for the state to use the sword for justice because that was a complete corruption of the use of the sword. It was for horrendous wrong tangent there with the Holocaust, but just the idea of violence being done to Christ and he receives that. Um, well, I think, how, how does that... Yeah. Oh, it, 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 it's a challenge to me personally, because I'm not, like I said, you know, it's a matter of conscience, whether one serves as, has the freedom to serve as a soldier or not. I'm not sure how I could, or if I would, or be able to, even if I wanted to fight as a soldier, partly because of courage, partly because of what you're mentioning, Michael, about. um, But on the other hand, I still think that the state has a role to use the sword for justice. And I think that's a God-ordained sphere. There's a sphere of the church, and there's a sphere of the state. And the state, because it's a fallen world, the last thing we want is there to be no government, um, because then you've got complete. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not here arguing, obviously, for a passive view. Com- but I'm just saying, I wonder if how does how does the no, crucifixion but- enter into th- theological reflection upon war, or does it? Am I am I getting us off on yes. a rabbit trail? Um, You see, I guess it would depend. You can take that. You could. A pacifist would say, because Jesus took that violence, we are. I don't even like the expression pacifist, but I'll use it because probably most hearers, you know, know well. I think they know what they mean by that. But, but a pacifist, sort of how tr- pacifists are tr- traditionally understood, would look at that example of Jesus being crucified and say, "That's exactly what I am to emulate." Right, that 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 Jesus' response to injustice and the use misuse of the state sword was to die, and that is what I am to do. So, in the face of violence, I am to die as well, and to be willing to die. And so, to to be like Jesus is to be crucified. And so, that's not so much thinking theologically; it's it's acting as Jesus in a sense, um, whereas. Whereas a different way of looking at it is to say that because there is such misuses of the state's sword in doing such horrendous evils, such as crucifixion of Christ and of others, of course, 
Um, that's a call for a state to use its sword for justice because those things wouldn't happen. Injustice wouldn't happen. I, I talk about this in the book that Christians often lament the state of the world, famine, disease, um, you know, broken states, um, you know, the, the child soldiers, um, you know, young girls taken off as sex slaves in area. And, and so many of those problems are because there's no functioning state using the sword for justice. It's a state using its sword for injustice. And imagine, think of all the broken nations on the planet, mm -hmm. that if it had good government with a properly functioning state, suppressing evil and leading and promoting human flourishing, how different things would be. Now, I'm not a utopianist. I, the world has fallen, but things could be better. And so sometimes I, I, I want to say it, but I don't, but sometimes I do. It's like the problems you're talking about, it's, it's, it's a problem of government. Good government would solve that problem. And so, you know, and, but sometimes the problem is, is solved by the proper use of the state's sword. And Gord, you saw in this ancient tradition, there is one of those, I forget which number it was, but that, that calling on the church or on the people of God to pressure the state yeah. to rightly administer the sword, right? To sometimes say, use it, mm -hmm. and sometimes say, don't use it the way you're using it, right? It's not, and this is where maybe I, I, a pacifist might not like me because, you know, I say as a Christian, sometimes you need to get asked the state to do something that is violent because that's the role of the state. But other times you have to, to, to say state, that is not right. That is not just, you have to stop. And yeah, it's put all, away your sword. <laughs> and, it, 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 and it's always moving because the state can start out right and start to go wrong, or it can start out wrong and start to go right. And Christians, you know, as they engage the state, um, need to to be very wise, careful. Remember, you're butting up against the state, and states are very powerful. And there needs to be, and I talk about, you know, wisdom in this whole process of engaging the state because sometimes it's not done very well. Um, but it's it's calling upon the state to do what the state's supposed to do. Now, the ethical question for me as a Christian is, can I participate in that or not? And I leave that to Christian conscience because there are some Christians who are able to do that according to their conscience. And there are other Christians who cannot. And I say, listen, those of you who are who say you can show grace and 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 allow for Christian conscience that way, but also going the other way as well. Those of you who can't show grace and be supportive of those who have a conscience who can. Um, Which it sounds like, Gord, am I accurate in saying that goes back full circle to the opening of this particular episode where you, you are going against this binary? So could it be that? There's Christians who aren't pacifists, and yet their conscience doesn't allow them to participate in what they would say is a just war. It's it's just there's this category of I'm not a pacifist, but but my conscience doesn't allow me to participate as a as a believer. And, and that's whatever that's called. Yeah, oh no, and that I think that gets to Paul and his in Romans when he's mm -hmm. talking about conscience, what what one Christian can do, one Christian can't do. 
And, and to go against that would be sin for that person. And other Christians must recognize that. And, and so on this issue, um, I think we need to, I think we can all agree on those five points, but in areas of conscience, we need to protect those things and come to, and this is, you know, where I, it really bothers me when the state um, suppresses conscience or coerces people. Uh, I'm very Baptist in this point. I was going to say, you're a good Baptist. That, uh, that you know, you know, the conscription may be necessary at, at times in a war, for instance, but even in the midst of conscription, there has to be some kind of recognition of conscience. I'm opposed to coercion, especially in matters, you know, coercing someone to go kill someone. That's despicable. Um, and that it should not be supported. I feel for countries, I have students in my class, so they say, but Gord, what you're saying is, is you know, I'm from you know, XYZ country. I don't want to name countries, but but the students say, I have no choice. When I turn, you know, 18, 19, 20, I have to do my two-year service and to say, no, I will be in prison seven or eight years. And so so it's easy to say, um, and, and Martin Luther, actually, Martin Luther's always the poster boy for like, obey the state no matter what, even though that's not Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther says, you know, you must obey God rather than men. He said, this is very difficult, but you'll have to pay the consequences for it. And so there are times, and you hope and pray you have courage to be able to stand up at that time um, and say you can't do that. Um, the book is called Christians, the State, and War, an Ancient Tradition for the Modern World. Thank you very much. Gordon Heath. Gord, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. And again, I want to tell our audience, gordonlheath.com. Uh, again, Dr. Heath, thank you for your time. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.